0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Office Hours. great to have you here this morning or afternoon or evening, whatever part of the world you are in, and whatever time zone you're coming to us from, welcome. Uh, This is Office Hours. And if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget you can find out always more about what we do on officehours.global. First hour, it's a general discussion of production and IT-related topics. We are answering your questions. So you truly do drive this show in terms of what you ask about and how you vote on the things that you ask about because you are allowed to vote up or down any of the questions that we'll be discussing today and the things that get the most votes we will spend the most time on. Today in our second hour, we're going to be talking about HDR, high dynamic range video topics. Um, and we're kind of doing that in advance of our NAB coverage, because we'll be talking about a lot, a lot about that. And Alex will be here helping us understand more about the goals and plans and what we're looking to try and accomplish in Vegas over the next, well, it's just over a week away now. So Time for our first hour producer questions. Alex, what are we going
1: with this morning? First question is from Jens Olsen in uh, San... I'm sorry, I got the wrong one there. <laughs> my, my display is different than yours. Uh, first, first question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. And Roscoe asks, uh, how would you remove the blue tint from the side screens? And he shows an image. Uh, stage lights are 3200K, as is the wet white balance setting on the camera. Switcher is an ATEM 4K 1ME. This is iMag, so any process delay may be an issue. And it gets streamed.
2: Chris Fenwick is going to start us off here. Chris? By the way, Alex, I got myself a paintbrush. I'm going to start to learn how to draw on the screen like you do. Amazing. Um, uh, Roscoe, I think the better answer is change the color of the stage. Uh, the stage should not be, in my opinion, the stage should not be lit at 3,200. I think doing it at 5,600 uh, solves all the problems. Otherwise, you know, there's other
1: ways that I'm sure Alex and Courtney
0: have. Well, and Alex is going to start us out here then, the Alex.
1: Yeah, the, the the software that runs those screens should be able to change the color of those screens, the overall um you know color that's there, the same way you would change your TV. If you go to your TV, you can change the white point of your TV without any other processing. And generally, the software that goes to the LED walls can do the same thing. If it doesn't, you should have different software for that because I don't even I've never even seen one that couldn't do that. <laughs> so so um so you should be able to have the processor just simply go towards a, a white point that makes sense for your show. Courtney, your thoughts.
3: It depends. I didn't get a chance to look at the image that he included there. If it depends on whether those screens are projection or whether they're LCD, if they're uh, LCD trying to shift, if it has, if they're LCDs and they have, uh, uh, like a 9,000 Kelvin LED backlight, you're going to run into problems when you try and color shift them toward, uh, toward tungsten, because the way LCDs work, they're little shutters in there. They're like this, they turn horizontal. And then they turn vertical. And uh, if you're taking the blue channel and dialing it down 60% to get to that uh, color balance to match the color balance of the tungsten, the blues are starting about 80% closed. And so that means your sweet spot <clears throat> as those little shutters move up and down it narrows the sweet spot and the color is going to shift radically on that led depending upon which direction the shutters are are aligned in and the ips tries to mix them up but it's going to shift the color depending upon the angle off center you are on those screens so it's not going to look good if you try and color correct an lcd if you're doing a projection i'd suggest just dropping a you know half half cto filter in front of the projector screen and that will get it closer or do as Fenwick said, just balance the stage lighting at, uh, <laughs> you know, 6,000 and it's a lot easier to match You know, make the screens and the, and the you know, flesh tones look correct on those projection screens.
1: Alex, you had some follow-up. Yeah. And, and my only guess is, is the reason that it's 3,200 is because you have old lights in the, in the, in the ceiling. So those are old, you know, some kind of old projection lights that, that are tungsten, I haven't seen a modern uh, pre- presentation at 3,200 for a decade, <laughs> so, so so I think that uh, to to go back to what Chris and what Courtney said, uh, the proper way to do this is is exactly what Chris alluded to at the beginning, which is to color correct the the um, the lighting. I'm just saying there's other ways to correct it if you if you don't have that option, um, but but the lighting is is right, and usually we have a problem. More so with the, with the new LED lights, or, you know, <laughs> we get into situations where they're giving it to us at 6,700 or they're giving it to us at higher high levels that are, that are uh, co- cooler um, and usually not warmer uh, than, than that. But uh, for an older system, um, that would be why you'd be stuck with tungsten is my guess.
0: And just to extrapolate a little bit on changing the lighting out, it depends on the kind of lighting that the room is in. If you have 3,200 balanced uh, tungsten bulbs up there, you can sometimes remove them and get daylight bulbs and put them up there that are more close to 6,000 or 7,000 degrees Kelvin. And also, if it's Temporary, you're not the actual owner of the place and you have to make a change for a shoot in there. Uh, You can do some color correction with gels. Typically, the two big gels that we look for, CTO and CTB, color temperature orange is designed to take blue daylight kind of lighting and bring it down into more the realm of tungsten. And then CTB, color temperature blue, does the opposite. It takes tungsten and makes it appear closer. Both of those are filtering things, though, so they are blocking some of the light coming out. Those are just common tools that most lighting directors carry around in their kit to try to do what we're talking about, which is make sure that all your lighting is as consistent in color temperature as possible across your entire
1: set. So some ideas. Let's go on to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael and Douglas asks, what control surface would be the most hands-on for mixing in Logic Pro? Alex. Yeah, so there's a couple of them that you, you may want to think about there. Uh, the one that has, a, that has probably the most tools and is, is well-known is the Presonus uh, fader port. Uh, and that one is, um, you know, so that's, a, that's got a lot on it. Now, the one that we've used the most for these kinds of things, both with hardware mixers and with software uh, DAWs, is the Behringer X-Touch. And then, of course, um, uh, Chris and I are playing with uh, this. I, I haven't taken it taken out of the box yet, Chris, but, but, the, uh, but the Korg has its own um, nano controls that's, that's cool. all Chris? i wanted
2: to yeah i'm sorry that's all i wanted to ask i wanted to know if you had uh did you get I the white take... one I, I i don't know what it, that's what it says on the thing i didn't know that i didn't know there was okay, a let's color. unboxing let's open it let's see it
0: wait where's your overhead camera where's, where's <laughs> <laughs> overhead camera and
1: graphics overlay and music and slow motion yeah sound effects no it's black it's just, okay it's just, it's just so like, I, it's, I was just wanting to here know it is right here this is fresh out of the Ah, oh. oh, look at that! Isn't that very? It's got satisfying? a USB Ooh. port
2: on the left side. Still, what's has your a philosophy panel on small? bubble wrapped yeah. unboxing? About it's popping down, the bubbles Alex. upside oh, down. Is. Upside is. down. Flip it over. It's upside. down. There you go. Okay, nice. so we're
1: gonna good have a lab with the later. camera. Yeah, the yeah,
4: autofocus is working great, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> you know, isn't it? Isn't that good?
1: <laughs> That's my my new thing. You just got to cover your eyes. Like it'll it'll work as long as you cover your eyes. Yeah, <laughs> you it's like, very fast and very responsive. It looked great all right so that's
0: what uh, i wanted to know fenwick we'll you don't have anything else you ready to move on no
2: no but i w- <laughs> it
0: feels actually very nice.
2: alex what i will do i'm going to send you two screen grabs uh that'll get you 90 percent to the way of mapping that thing properly
1: sounds great okay good
0: see even behind the scenes we're here about sharing information that's the magic of
1: office hours let's go on to the next question and see if we can share some more next question is from jens Olsen in sandpoint idaho and jens asks I'm trying to display dashboard websites on four different TVs uh, up on the wall in an office. What is the best way to do this, short of having a stack of Mac Minis? Courtney, start us off. Well, uh, if they're just uh, websites, they're not.
3: Doesn't sound like you're going to have any heavy lifting there on the compute side. I'd suggest, as you know me, the Meleys. Uh, this is a PCG 2 but you can get the quieter two. This has uh, number of uh, usb3 it has gigabit ethernet for connecting to your internet and it has two hdmi ports and then i use one of these a pluggable expansion port which has usb3 plug on it and it has two an hdmi and a dvi slash with an adapter will also do hdmi so you could get four feeds out of this one computer which should be able to run four four websites on four different screens. You can also set these to automatically uh, come on when power is applied and launch your uh, four websites into the four different screens. So uh, you might be able to do that fairly cheaply for under about $300, a lot cheaper than four Mac
1: minis. Alex. Yeah. And what we've used for uh, one of the things that we've done a lot of is is called cart, which means that we're putting the captions on a screen in the room. So, So, you know, so you that way you can have them on the corner of a room for a live one, and that might be 15 or 20 monitors. <laughs> we don't want to distribute to all of those. And so what we've used in the past are Chrome sticks. And the Chrome sticks have been allowed, we just stick them in the back of the TV and um, and and put them in there and, and get them to a web page and they work great. And then they're all independent and we give them their own little web page and uh, we're at, that's how we distribute that. Um, uh, the, the captions to that, but it should be just fine for your dashboard as well. And they're pretty inexpensive. I think they're 50 or $60 each. Um, so that's another way to possibly handle it. I think that Courtney's solution is great as well. I think it, it just means you have to cable everything. With the Chrome sticks, you just stick them in the back of every TV and and you're done.
0: Yeah, and so I hope that, ha- oh, Courtney has our follow-up.
3: Coordinate. Sorry, I get buried in Windows here and I can't get <laughs> to the mute switch. Uh, you, you, they also make, I mean, they also make something similar to Chrome Stick, but
1: it's a full version of Windows Pro, but uh, that's and another that way work as well. to do Yeah, know. and it's not very expensive and you, you mm-hmm. would, uh, it might cost a little bit more with the, me- the Melees, but you would have a lot more util- utilization as well. So you would have a lot more you could do with it um, there as well.
0: All right. Well, hopefully Jens, that took care of your questions. Let's move on to the next one.
1: Next question is from Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, what are your go-to tips for someone going to NAB for the first time? Let's go to John Pretto since he's a native in Las Vegas first.
4: Bring very comfortable shoes, Jonas. And the, the, the lesser amount of stuff that you actually carry, the better. So <laughs> you can, know, knowing that that stuff's going to get real heavy real fast because you're going to walk miles, guaranteed.
0: I'm just going to note before we go to Courtney that every single person that I ask for tips for NAB, even back to the days when I wasn't going, the first thing they talked about was always shoes. It is a complete tell that somebody has actually been there before. Uh, Courtney?
3: Yeah, I get, uh, when I'm back, when I used to wear a suit, I would even u- use the uh, New Balance referee shoes, which was black on black leather. But uh, <laughs> they were uh, tennis shoes and they were very comfortable. Uh, that's rule number one. And as Prato said, don't uh, carry around a bag full of literature these days. Uh, you know, just take your phone and the QR code is your friend. Just take a picture of a QR code or the name or a picture of anybody's business card. Don't even carry those around. Take pictures of them, store them in your phone, and you can go through them at night. And they usually will have links to the websites and you can do further examination of everything that you see there and travel light. Because I know... Carrying that literature, I used to carry about fifty pounds of literature around that show, and by the end of the day,
0: it was murder. Absolutely, Tom. Another vote for comfortable shoes and uh, perhaps a small bag for swag.
1: Alex, yeah, I I, uh, I usually take a. I do have usually a small bag that I carry around over my shoulder, uh, but I don't put very much in it. I definitely don't take any paperwork from any booth. I'm like, oh, I'm not that we don't have that kind of relationship, you know, for me to take you take paper from you. Uh, and so so that that um, definitely take pictures. A lot of times what I do is I do take pictures of the, um, I take pictures of the booths that I'm interested in. So if I saw something, and what you're gonna see me do is at NAB is I'm, I take a lot of notes with my phone and I'm gonna turn those into shorts, but that's what I used to do all the time is I would, I would go to a booth, I'd be interested in something and to remember it, I would just take a video of it and I'd talk and I would just go, this is this. I'm I'm here at this booth. This is this. This is what it does. This is how much it costs. This is why I'm interested in it. And then I'd walk away. And those are my personal notes that I have of IBC, of NAB, of lots of things. I'm going to turn those into shorts because they're about a minute, a minute long <laughs> or less. And they were just notes for me to remember things. Otherwise, I forgot where where that was or what it is. A lot of times, I start with I start on the the sign of the booth so I can remember what what it was. So I'm not so I'm not digging around. But I found that to be very, very useful. I have to admit on the first day, usually I'm pretty whimsical. Um, I wander through the booth. I just wander around and see what grabs my eye. Uh, I, you know, After that, I start to get a little bit more, I'm gonna go back and look at this. Or I'm gonna spend more time with these folks and usually I have a lot of meetings. <laughs> so so it usually uh, gets kind of filled up with those things. Um, one thing that I do do, I would recommend is there's, um, on, I don't know where it's gonna be this year. On the South Hall, there in the South Hall, in the upper deck, there used to be all the magazines. And I go, I walk down those magazines and I will say the one piece of paper that I get, and I usually do it before I go back to my hotel room or before I go back to something, I grab a bunch of those magazines and I at least take them back and kind of flick through them. If I like them, I take a picture of the covers and then I subscribe. A lot of them are free now. They used to be like hundreds of dollars a year to subscribe, but now it's like they're all free. They just want you to, you know, um, subscribe to them. And there's a lot of magazines there that you've never seen before. <laughs> they're, they're very vertical magazines that you're never going to see in a magazine shop. You're never going to find them on your own. Um, and I find that those are, those are pretty useful. Courtney. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, another good tip. You get things like vision systems, you know, stuff you've
3: never heard of before. But when you're going in, there'll be uh, people handing out something called the NAB Show Daily. Grab one of those. There, It's mostly promotional, but there's a chance a lot of smaller manufacturers will take out ads or they will do an article in there about something that's really interesting that might capture your interest that may not get enough publicity to put something in a smaller booth you know, uh, in a ma- in a slick magazine. So look for the show daily, pick that up, peruse through it if the show hasn't opened yet while you're drinking your morning coffee and make notes of the booth numbers that are in that show daily of things you want to visit and anything that, that uh, strikes your fancy that's mentioned in the show daily. And they publish that on a daily basis starting the day before the show opens.
1: Alex, yeah, I, I want to underline with Courtney what Courtney said. The show daily is probably the most valuable thing that I find that, that, that shows me new things that are being released because it's also where everybody puts something if they released it. <laughs> like you know, everybody you know. So if there's any new releases, you're going to find them in the in the NAV show daily. If you're in a hotel, if you bought the hotel through the through the expo, it'll show up at your hotel room. Like it'll literally be outside your door. Otherwise, you can get them as you as you walk in. the o- The other thing that I would say is water is super important. Uh, you don't really you don't really see Vegas has almost zero humidity and you will not notice how much water how much moisture you're losing every at every moment um so you know definitely plan for water um don't try not to drink any more caffeine and try not to drink any more alcohol than you normally drink um all of these things will affect you very much more than they would normally and so you just want to be very careful i i i Barely drink at all at an a b anymore <laughs> I won't say that that's always the way I did it but but I will say that in the last ten years I've learned that I'm just too old for that and so so the uh so i I would recommend uh really you know it's it's really tempting to go out and do a lot of those things um but by the end of the week you're you're feeling a little pretty rough, you know, and the other thing is don't shake people's hands like like try not you know this is a you're in a super spreader, just know that you're in a super spreader um and that you're going and you're willing to take the hit and you're probably going to get sick especially now in COVID days you're probably going to get one rsv or COVID or the flu within 10 days you have about a 50 50 chance of, of, of getting one of those three in vegas um going to one of these events you greatly increase that chance if you shake every person's hand that you walk by because you're not shaking their hand you're shaking everybody they shook you know but an elbow or a wave. And it's much more socially acceptable now than it was before <laughs> that, that you're just like, hi, you know, so uh, it's 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 a little easier than shaking so, hands. You can so shake some people's hands, but don't shake everybody's hands.
3: You're shaking, saying take a quart of disinfecting moisturizer with. <laughs> yeah, those are good too. A little corral yeah, sanitizer. I don't know how
1: well that that, that stuff even works. Yeah. So, um, and again, just know that when you're going there, that you're going to, you know, there's a pretty, pretty high probability at this point. We used to get sick. We used to call it the, whatever, the convention crud that you would get after a convention. It's just that the the stakes are a little higher than they, they used to be.
0: I'm gonna add a couple of little things. Number one, um you're going to get on the show floor during the day is just chaos. There's no way to really describe how many visual stimulation things are. Sometimes you kind of know that the booth was over in this quadrant of the hall and I'm going to go over there next. And then I've gotten completely turned around, even trying to find it, even though I had been there before. It's just a very visually complex thing. The other thing is that I found that the show floor is great and you should really experience that. But most of the relationship stuff that I built off of NAB and the first five or ten years happened in the evenings after the show was over. And that's where you can find your vertical. If you are, for example, uh, interested in sound, there may be an event, uh, an informal or a formal event for soundies that happens in adjacent to NAB. And if you can find out that, you know, the AES is doing this mixer in the evening, you will meet a lot of people in your vertical. And it can happen for anybody, if you're in lighting, if you're in cameras, whatever it is. Those are the places where over a nursed beer, because I agree with Alex, it's not a good time to be drinking tons. You're going to be putting out a lot of energy over the course of this. But that's where you can start talking to people and making your true industry contacts. And so the evenings are really where I started forming most of the friendships that in the the many years I've been going are now very dear to me and And really got me known by a lot of people that I otherwise wouldn't have met. So pay attention to both of them. That means you're going to be spending long days, which is another reason. I try to change my shoes between the daytime and the nighttime adventures at NAB because I just don't want them wearing on me that long. So all these little tips, but just go and have fun. It's an amazing place and you'll have a great time. Let's move to the next
1: question next question is from chris widener in lafayette indiana and chris asks i know links have been given but any particular fiber hdmi cables that are good or that are best to avoid alex you have some opinions i'm going to keep coming back to i would convert to SDI or fiber proper fiber rather than using fiber hdmi cables um they are convenient and they work at times but the you're p- paying a lot of money for something that will cost a lot of money to replace and um, usually, it's much less expensive and more. If if you're gonna if if you kind of have a kit you've kind of built around it, uh, I don't have any specific um, HDMI cables that I would use for fiber. I think that um, uh, Corning makes a you know makes the source for almost all of them. So you just have to figure out which which Corning <laughs> version you want to use. Uh, but but I think that that you I still you know we we got into using HDMI fiber in the early days, and maybe it's just that that, that experience was poor um that we just decided we rather do converter boxes and not not use the cables and I, i'm going to keep coming back to i would convert to to sdi or, or to proper fiber before i um before i got hdmi cables that did
0: okay is that time too for me to remind you that your questions drive this show we have a good stock of questions but we can always use more and particularly if you take the time to go Examine the list of questions and vote up the ones you think are the most important because those votes determine how quickly we get to your questions and uh, often how much time we spend on them. So the things you're interested in and the whole run of the show can be driven by you if you take the time to do that. So we encourage it. Thanks very much for that. Let's go on to the next question.
1: Uh, next question is from Jonas, Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany. And Jonas asks, looks like the rumors are true. The Yamaha DM3 may be the next standard mixer for live streaming, 16 by 16 Dante, for $2,000.
0: John Credo wants to weigh in on this, and it looks like the next uh, question is also about this from Mickey. So, But let's, let's start with this one. John, take it away.
4: Jonas beat uh, Mickey by two minutes. They must be on the same email list or something. This is a, a really interesting piece. It's very, very similar to the Behringer X32. Um, it's it's only got 22 channels in instead of 40 like the X32. And you can get it with or without Dante built in it. The, the $2,000 version has Dante built in it. And I'm happy to see that my X32 went up in price. It's $1,700 now. And if you add in Dante card, you're up you're up to twenty one hundred dollars. So, but I don't see a rack version of the Yamaha. So they've got this version that looks like the X thirty two compact with the motorized faders on it. Looks like an interesting piece of gear. Good find.
0: And let's go to the next question because Mickey. so I'm sorry, Hi. Courtney. Courtney, Courtney. You wanted to. I was ask. just
3: going to say, yeah, yeah. Um, if you want to see it. Um, I guess I can't show it <laughs> anyway. Uh, it does look interesting with the motorized f- uh, faders, and it has one giant LCD panel. It looks kind of like an iPad on it. So <clears throat> it may have remote software that you can run it a- on a separate tablet to run around with as well. I haven't read those specs on it yet.
0: So Mickey's question coming up next is on the same subject, so maybe there's more time to look at things. Uh, go ahead to the next one.
1: Uh, next question is from Mickey Makachor uh, in the Philippines. And Mickey asks, the embargo on the Yamaha DM3-D uh, 22-channel board with Dante uh, at a USD 2K price point has lifted by X32. Uh, new board, uh, uh, ability to power from 24-volt DC makes it a contender for narrative and TV sound c- uh, cards. Thoughts?
0: Alex, do you want to continue with what you were?
1: Yeah, it, it looks really impressive. I mean, it 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 is an impressive um, uh, you know piece of machinery there. I have to admit that, like what was said before, I'm hesitant to give up my rack mount. <laughs> you know, so so my rack mount is something that uh, that I I'm interested in this, but but a lot of times the rack mount is something that is pretty important. That form factor is really important to me. Uh, to have that, you know, to, to, for at least what we do um, to make that actually happen. I will say this board looks amazing though. I mean, it's, it is a, I could definitely see in exactly what Nick uh, Mickey's talking about for narrative and TV sound carts. I think that this is a really fascinating, um, you know, piece of machinery. It looks really great. We already know that Yamahas are going to do a great job at just about everything that they, that they put their fingers onto. So I don't know if it replaces it immediately. I do think that we're probably going to see that price point from the X32 drop, which is good for us, uh, except for the people who paid because we've seen the X32 go down as as much as down to as low as twelve hundred dollars. Um, and uh, so I think that it could, it could drop. And I think that if Yamaha built one of these with a rack mount, I'd be really interested. Um, but uh, but I think even now for a bunch of the shows that we do, I could see my I could see us using this,
3: Courtney. Yeah, and another good thing for production sound mixers, if you look at the back of it, it's got uh, a four, a 5-pin DC input, uh, so uh, you can power it off a of 12 volts DC, and it, look at all those nice. 20 acceler- volts DC. Is it 24? I think it 24. With
0: a 5-pin? Mm, That's so. unusual. Okay.
1: But it's yeah. still great. I mean, that, that makes a huge difference for the portability, absolutely.
0: Uh, let's move on to the next question. Everybody's excited about that.
1: Uh, next question is uh, from Paul Wallace uh, in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, anyone considering getting an ATEM television studio HD?
0: Uh, we don't have anybody who's raised their hand. Alex, do you have some information about it? Do you know?
1: You know, I think that this is, is this the, is this an, is there a new one or is he just talking about the old one? I, that's the part I wasn't totally clear of is if it, if something had, uh, if, it, if something had changed. I think this is the, or this must be the the new I think this is the new one that has the built-in contr- the control panel built in. I have the old Television Studio HD, which was a rack mount. Yeah, um, and this is what's interesting about this one right now is that the cost uh, for these. Oh, this is the one that we did. We, we watched the presentation for this. You know, the cost for this. What's interesting is it's less than what we used to pay for the actual panel itself. <laughs> so it was it was an enormous. Uh, so they they really brought the price down. I, I think the problem that I have with it for the most part is that I really like my switcher to be rack mounted so that it's in the system, you know, pulling out all the gack into the back of the switcher is not something I'm super excited about. So it's probably not the form factor that I would want because I really want to bring my panel out and have an ethernet cable go out to it. I don't really want all the gear in the back and and when I see that in a kit I'm just like, "Wow, it's going to be a lot of work." You know, and so so that's that is uh, but I think that there are many people with all-in-one solutions that might be interested in that. I do think it's interesting that there's a lot of Ethernet in the back of that panel. I think we should keep watching that those ports. <laughs> all
0: right. Next question. Uh,
1: next oh, question. Oh, wait is a second.
0: The, I'm sorry. Courtney. Oh, all right. Next question. I
1: was on a different screen. My apologies, uh, Courtney. Uh, the, uh, did you have anything else Courtney before we jump to the next question?
3: Um, yeah, I was just going to say they look like they're targeting this for a House of Worship or something where uh-huh. that's going to be a desktop a switcher that stays in one place rather than something that you're loading in and loading out all the time. So that's that, and that's a pretty big market for you know corporate boardrooms
1: and houses of worship. Yeah, even in that environment, I just don't like all the all the GAC going out. You know, I, 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 especially in an installed environment, I want all the GAC in a server room somewhere, and I want to be able to control it from wherever I'm going to control it. It just means that all your signal has to all go to this place, rather than having you know you want your router and your signal and everything else in a rack, and then you want this. and And I I guess for really small events, you can use a product like that, where you're not going to have a router, you're not going to have a bunch of other things that have to happen, you know you know and and I and I so I can see it being used, but it's a really small event, you know almost a hobby event in my opinion to get to a point where I want to plug things into the back of the panel. Uh, next, uh, next question is from Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia. And Alex asks, uh, what is the model of Netgear Switch that has profiles for Dante? TOM FERGUSON.
0: Well, this comes in many different flavors. It's the M, Mary, 4,250. And depending on the number of ports and how you want it configured, it's going to run you between $600 and $1,200. OK. There's a simple answer, I guess, that that unit does what
1: you're looking for. Thanks, Alexander. And moving on to the next question. Next question is from Tim Home in San Lorenzo, California. And Tim asks, uh, I purchased the 256 gig version of the Melee Quieter 3 by Courtney uh, the, the other day um, with $188, $188 worth of coupon. Uh, what don't you want to run on this? uh alex you you popped in before me okay courtney do you want to you want to take this
3: it depends on which version you got there's a 4125 version and then there's a uh a 5105 version different processors i've had some trouble with the 5105 it's a newer processor with the drivers the hd audio drivers so that the hd audio that comes out over the hdmi ports stutters it's just a driver issue they've got the buffer set wrong and I've notified them about it. They eventually will fix it. But the forty-one twenty-five does not have that problem. The analog outs do not have that problem. But uh, you can run anything you want to on it. And I like the quieter, the quieter threes, the bigger ones. This is a this is a different one. This is a little smaller. And the forty-one twenty-five version of this takes an NVMe drive in it that you can put up to four terabytes inside the thing, and it's completely quiet, no fans. Um, so. The larger version, which I have plugged in here right now, but um, is a little bit bigger than this. It's about another half inch longer. And it also takes an internal NVMe drive, uh, so you can add up to four terabytes of high-speed NVMe inside the thing, in addition to all its connectivity. And I I haven't run into, into anything. That really won't run on it. I wouldn't run Unreal Engine or anything that's you know heavy graphics power that needs an external graphics card, but anything that'll run on the Intel D600 graphics chips run
1: fine on it. Alex, did you have a follow up? Did Courtney is is the how many cores are in this in the quieter?
3: It's quiet. It's uh, they're all quad core. They come with eight gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigs of uh, uh. you know, uh, onboard storage, which you can add NVMe to uh, its MMR storage. So it's not the onboard storage that the operating system is on is not that fast, but the NVMe is so you can make it quite a screaming machine. If
1: you move your OS and your programs to the NVMe,
0: cool. Let's go to the next question.
1: Next question is from Morgan Price in Victoria, British Columbia. And Morgan asks, uh, Uh, Can Apple Motion create isometric animations? If not motion, then what would the panelists use to create a simple isometric style animation? Currently thinking of a simple stacking colored cube, a Lego style animation uh, for an educational video. Alex? It can do it. It can't do it. Great. (laughs) Great. So, so isometric is usually at this isometric angle, and you're it's a three d animation, and you're going to have you know dimension and so on and so forth. Now, motion will import USDZ files, and you can even build things with if they're simple cubes that you're going to roll in, you can actually just attach a bunch of planes to each other and it'll render those out. The real problem with motion so far is that when it renders the three d elements out, It has a little bit of aliasing it's not anti-aliasing as well as it could even when you're doing the post render Uh, we haven't found that that anti-aliasing is great so um so i have a tendency to oversample. i I render it twice the resolution i need and then i scale it back down and then i get a softer edge uh, there but that's the problem really with motion right now it's very convenient and i've done whole 3d animations about uh, products inside of motion as you know kind of an experiment and it's worked fairly well um, the other issue is, is that if you're doing anything complicated, isometric is pretty easy. If you're doing anything complicated with cameras, motion's kind of like what a 2D designer would do if they thought, when they imagined how 3D would work. <laughs> like, it's like not not really a 3D, you know, there's not really the, the 3D cameras and the way that the, the, the they manage animation is a little complicated. Uh, your best bet, your best bet for, at no cost or very little cost. We Blender, of course, Uh, you can set that up and and get to an angle. The the app that I would use, of course, would be Cinema 4D because I've used it for a long time. And for people who are doing motion graphics and broadcast and those types of things, Cinema 4D is kind of a standard. Uh, If you're in an educational environment, remember that Cinema 4D for educators is almost free. I think it's like a dollar a year or, or something. I mean, some, some crazy number that's really, really low. So if you're an educator, Cinema 40 is, is really almost the same price as Blender and about 10 times the capacity capability.
0: Let's go to the next question.
1: Uh, next question is from Eric Price in Kansas City. And Eric asks, uh, what kind of kit is required to generate time code to be able to easily sync multiple cameras, GH5s, and your audio with a MixPre? Uh, I, I know how to sync one camera direct to the MixPre, but not multiples. Courtney. Well, it depends on what type of cameras you're trying to sync
3: to. Um, there are a number of products. Tentacle makes a pretty good version. Ambient makes a good version. These little sync boxes that are time code generators, you jam them to your mix pre, or you jam your mix pre to it either way, and uh, then it stays in sync with a certain, you know, within a frame or two a day, within a frame a day, a quarter of a frame a day. And then you stick that little box onto your camera, and that can either have LTC out, over a mini plug that'll plug into the audio inputs if you're using like a dslr or a camera that has a microphone input on it or if you've got a higher-end camera like uh, that accepts time code in like the higher-end canons or uh, Lexas or uh, those type of cameras you can convert it to a bnc connector and plug it into the time code in or some of them have uh limo connectors or fisher connectors so you just have to get the right connector to get that signal in there at ltc signal some of the higher end cameras if you're trying to sync multiple cameras where they have to be in frame sync with each other uh, if you're doing 3d or something where uh, multiple cameras have to be transitioning from frame to frame at precisely the same moment in time uh, then you're going to need to actually drive the camera's sync pulse as well so there's a tri-level sync output on the antenna key and the ambient uh, boxes that can actually drive the frame rate of the camera. Otherwise, it's just a reference that goes onto an audio track, which you can decode later in your editing software just to get them uh, to line up uh, in sync to the nearest frame uh, in your post-production.
1: Alex? Alex? Yeah, tentacles is the one we see the most for independent uh, con, um, uh, systems, for larger systems, ambient timecode systems are the ones that we see the most, uh, you know, as far as how people use those to sync, um, to, to get those exactly what Courtney said. If you don't have them, we for a long time, we didn't have anything. And so, and we'd only have sound in maybe one of the cameras. And we used to do uh, what we call a mini slate, which is someone would would just look at the camera. All the cameras would point at someone and they go like this. And we'd sync all the cameras with that, so that that's the that's the most the most organic way. We go dook, and and we we it'd be really funny because it was something we didn't want talent to have to be to Literally, uh, I, I just have a history of working with these these talent. And they they would just go. This is in the early days, maybe twenty years ago. But so you you can you can just sync them up uh, or get audio to all of them, and you can sync them all up. But uh, technical ambient timecode systems are probably the ones you want to look at.
0: Back in those days, we used to use black burst generators too, because that would do enough to sync
1: the cameras and old stuff. Let's move on to the next question. Uh, Next question is from Tim Holm in San Lorenzo, California. And Tim asks, which Zoom recorder uh, do you like to use for quick field recording? Uh, Is the best choice? What's the best choice for the price? uh, And would you choose something different or why? Alex, what do you think? yeah so i mean the the one that i've taken the most overseas and i don't even know if this is actually current is the h2n uh, and mostly it was because it was disposable <laughs> so where i where i took it um i was taking it into places that if i got I, I i might need to throw it out of the car so so um so i i used that uh and it worked perfectly well a little quirky but but worked perfectly well obviously if i'm in a safe system i'm going to use the sound devices uh recording device to make it work but if um but in more robot more dangerous areas I, I i moved to zoom so that i could th- again throw things out of cars if needed courtney yeah i do if you're going with zoom
3: i'd go with any of the f series which is the professional series they uh the new ones all do 32-bit float uh recording the uh f3 is like you know, $349, has two inputs, and an LCD is 32-bit float, runs uh, the the power handling on the, the zoom field recorders is much better, unfortunately, than the sound devices. Uh, and the F-series has the better preamps in it, uh, good, quiet preamps that also handle 48 um, volt Phantom. And um, that's what I'd go This one, you can clip onto your belt. And go all day on a set of batteries, and it takes external, uh, I think, a a USB-C input, so you can run it off a USB-C power pack as well for a good amount of time. And it'll automatically switch when one power source goes dead. It'll switch over to the second power source and keep running. And it supports full time code and all the frame rate flavor variations of 25, 24, 23.
0: I wonder if you put That's two little uh, capsule mic capsules in those two XLR inputs and wore it on your hat band if it'd give you a little point of view binaural.
3: Well, well the one that, <laughs> that Alex like. recommended, the H series, does have two capsules that are in an XY situation you can put
0: right.
1: a
3: top. It'd be to interesting. It. So if you're just recording ambient recording, they're great for doing that. A lot of sound effects guys do that. I if you're if doing you
0: did stereo though and turn your head, would it would it shift perspective? that would be an interesting little test. <laughs> Sure, (laughs) okay, anyway, we're having fun. Let's move to the next question.
1: Uh, Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And uh, Paul said, Announced yesterday, Substack Notes is a new feature launched by the popular writing platform. It's designed to let users share posts, quotes, comments, images, and links in a short form feed. Uh, Sounds familiar, right? Uh, Is this the new Twitter? Uh, Alex, do you think it's a new Twitter? Maybe, <laughs> you know, I think the problem with Substack that, that I've, I've been a little resistant to is that almost everything's paid. And so you get you get a link and then you go there and you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to commit to this writer uh, for paying something for this. And then you leave. And the problem is, is that you can never, maybe if this is all public, it, it might work. Um, the hard part really is, is that when someone is a leader in, or not a leader, but they if, if you have more than a thousand followers on Twitter, you're, there's a high mark for you to move somewhere else. And so, you know, like you just, you kind of like, well, this is where I have a following. This is where I can get things done. And the idea of starting over in Substack and I, and, and it's easy to do in, into a, you know, using Twitter to have more people show up on YouTube or do something else might make sense. But it's, it's a really, it, it, I think people, everyone keeps on thinking that you know mastodon was supposed to be a a, the new twitter but i don't know anybody using it now like like it was everyone was like go to my mastodon server go to my mastodon server but eventually what happened is nothing happened and then they were like okay i quit you know and so and you know and so i think that substack is trying to find its space there and if they make that a very public area you'll see some people using it and maybe but it's a it's really hard like to, to create a new social network is Really hard, uh, and and to get people to go to do something, you really have to be doing something different. Doing something like Twitter is not going to get people on Twitter to come over to you because you'll be just like Twitter except with less viewers. <laughs> so, you know, so so it's I, I think it's a hard one. Next question. Next question is from James Falseline in Minneapolis Minnesota. And James asks, Faceplant just had a live stream introducing an update with granular synth. They mentioned at the end they really should have more live streams. How do we encourage, support the industry to take this approach?
0: And if you're going to look that
1: up, Faceplant is P-H-A-S-E-P-L-A-N-T.
0: I had not heard of them before. Alex, what do you think?
1: Well, first thing is, is go to their comments and say they should be on office hours. We've been trying to get a hold of them and get them to (laughs) send. we're trying to get them to come on office hours for like a year so so anyway so we really i uh, i i think phase plant is kind of a mind-blowing piece of software it's just when when you see what people are doing with it you're just like oh that is amazing um but the live stream you know live streams are hard and people we do it all the time and and it's kind of the water we're in but we have to remember that a lot of people fail at live streaming and they they think that they can do it with just a little you know little setup and it'll all work and there is you know, the thing we always have to describe to people is is that when your live stream goes sideways, especially let's say you get a 100 or 200 or 300 or 500 people, when your live stream goes sideways, it is like cutting your arm off with a butter knife. There is nowhere to go. You're in front of a whole lot of people and it's just embarrassing, you know? And, and what happens is everyone has that experience once. If it's their job, they figure out how to make that never happen again if it's not their job, they're like, okay, we're never doing that again. And so that's how live streams die. <laughs> so it is that people, people, they start doing a couple little tests and it seems really great. Then they do, then they promote it heavily and then it fails and then they don't want to do it anymore. And so, so I think that that is the, that's really the challenge. Um, I think that getting them to come on and hang out with us a little bit would be great. And we, we would love to have them. So if you have any contacts there, you know, and and you should, everyone should just go to the suggestion box and say, Hey we'd really love to see you come on for a second hour on on uh, office hours and then maybe they'll they'll return my emails okay now let's go to the next question. Uh, next question is from Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois, and Kenny asks. Most desktop driven, most desktop audio mixers are now touch panel driven, some larger than others. Do any provide outputs to connect a larger external tech uh, touch monitor for production or site restricted operators? How uh, do the rack mount versions handle touch control? Alex, you wanna help us out here? The most popular one that we use for this is the Behringer X-Touch, and it'll work with a Yamaha, it'll work with a lot of other sw- uh, mix- mixers. It, it has the protocol that it will just tie into those. And the X-Touch has been really great for us. And we've, I don't know, I probably owned 20 <laughs> at some point uh, in the past. And so, uh, and there's, there's, a, there's a smaller version of the X-Touch and a larger version of the X-Touch, but those give you that, orga- that more um, tactile control over uh, a rack mount or a, or a touch-based mixer.
0: Okay, let's move. Um, oh, before we do that, I'm I, I'm a little bit late with my announcement about the fact that we have a little bit more room here. Uh, if not, we'll move on to our second hour subject a little bit early. But if you've got some questions, make sure to toss them in there. And remember to vote on the ones that are already there as which you'd like to see us get to first. Okay, next question.
1: Uh, next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, what are some good options for web-based video editing and video storage from Budget to high end. Uh, Alex, uh, I don't know about the budget versions. None of them have been successful. Uh, the the one that we are trying to bring, on. I mean, they everyone tries to put them on, and it's supposed to be the next big thing, and none of them ever work. So, so I, you know, like they, they're all goofy and and hard to work with, and you, you, you they're not frame accurate. What I would say is that the best one that I've seen so far is what we saw on Monday with these uh, Descript. You know, Descript has you know the ability to cut things based on what people are talking about. It's got this little editor built into it. I don't know if it's really a video-based editor, but it's really a text-based editor, but it can edit video. And I think that um, that's the best thing I've seen to date for a reasonable price. Um, the big the big guns uh, for this are Blackbird, and we're gonna try to bring, it's blackbird.video, and we're gonna try to bring them on uh, after NAB. I've already, We've already started talking to them about it. And so uh, we've used them for larger events or larger campaigns. And it's really the that's the one that I mean it manages your captions and you can bring in graphics you can do cuts you can export it out to lots of different social platforms it's a it's like the big the big tool <laughs> to do that so so we'll we'll talk more about that in the future
0: yeah I'm looking forward to that because I agree with Alex so far a lot of people have talked about editing in the cloud but very few people are doing it very
1: successfully on a consistent basis let's go to the next question uh, next question is from Tim Home in San Lorenzo California and Tim asks. What action camera do you like for, quote, unquote, everyday carry?
0: We've got a couple of people who want to weigh in on this. Courtney, you'll start us off.
3: Well, as far as action cameras that I read, you know, to cover me getting in and out of the recliner, I find that the uh, <laughs> GoPro Hero Eleven works quite well. <laughs> you know? I'd look at GoPro so oh, seriously. They've come a long way, and their uh, image stabilization is fantastic if you're doing action. If you're doing blog stuff and you want a stable output, uh, it can give you a nice stable output for for the price. and they're 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 all pretty much waterproof and chalk proof and go longer on batteries than they used to. So I'd look at the GoPro.
0: I recommend hydraulics for rocker, recliner, ejection. Just letting you know, Tom Ferguson. Well, the GoPro is an excellent choice. I found the care and feeding to be a little too much for me at times. So I I just go with my iPhone, but I do carry one of these small rig cages and it sure makes it a lot easier to work with.
1: I agree with that, Alex. Yes. Yeah, small, the small rig cage with the iPhone is the way to go. <laughs> In my opinion, like I, I it's the, I, I taking another camera now for me is very foreign unless I'm really, I, if I'm doing real action, then I have some older GoPros that have, that seem to work great for me. Uh The newer GoPros I've had just an enormous number of problems with. So I start. I bought newer ones. I don't know if I've gotten to the 11, so maybe they got better. But there was, you know, after the five, it got worse and worse and worse um, as far as stability, heat management, and even the sometimes the interface. And so I just, I think by eight or nine, I gave up. Like I was just like, I'm done. You know, and and so I stopped buying GoPros. Um, and so I, I experiment with some of the other ones, but I haven't found one that I, that I like yet.
0: I'm actually going out to shoot middle of next week, and I'm actually taking my iPhone in the small rig cage and mounting it to the top of the Blackmagic 6K that I'm carrying because... They asked for the big camera, and I'm not as sure I'll get any better stuff out of that than I would get out of the iPhone for the kind of shoot that I am and the kind of run and gun thing I have to do. And sometimes you just have to do it that way. Courtney?
3: Yeah, if Jeffrey were here, he'd recommend the, um, the Insta360, the one that shoots 360-degree uh, video. And also I have the Osmo Pocket. An Osmo Pocket 2 is a good stabilized. It's got a tiny little gimbal. It's small. It will actually fit in your pocket. Uh, and you don't have to type your phone doing it. Uh, it
0: has a little screen. It's good for that, and it does
3: great stabilized footage.
1: There you go. So a uh, variety of responses. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Douglas Carmichael, and Douglas asks Alex, "You mentioned the use of AR in concert environment. Would Unreal Engine be used for most AR XR in a live setting?" Yes, Alex, "Take it." Yeah. The uh, uh, yes, sure. It's one of them, uh, you know, You know, like it, uh, right now, I would say Unreal Engine and Unity are both, we're, we're seeing both of those in the environment. Um, so the interesting thing is, is that Unreal, when it comes to broadcast integration, is much more popular because it has drop frame, 2997, and, and Unity does not. Unity is still pretty popular in the AR setting because they spent more all their energy more working on that direction as opposed to trying to tie into broadcast. So you see a lot of both Unity and Unreal in those environments. We're also going to see what happens with Reality Engine or whatever Apple's going to call it, the Reality OS. Um, they may have their own entire platform. Uh, I think that w- what we saw what what we saw four or five years ago was Apple putting. A, uh, uh, Unreal Engine into every presentation that they did when I, when Epic took Apple to court what we saw is no Unreal Engine <laughs> like showing up in any of these and we thought well Apple will move to Unity but that never happened and so uh, what a lot of us are thinking uh, as we go into WWDC is Apple decided that they're not going to use Unreal for whatever reason it didn't work out with Unity and they're just going to build their own so we think that they're that they're building their own uh platform and their own development environment as opposed to using any of the other ones and we should see a lot more of that in a couple months next question next question is from mike potter in hanover germany and ike asks follow up i can confirm that the atem streaming bridge can be driven with a poe by a passive poe splitter two millimeter connected to a poe plus switch no psu uh, needed for the sb for the streaming bridge uh, I put the link in for the splitter into the chat. Uncharted territory, charted. <laughs> Very well, good. thank you, Ike. Very good. Frank. <laughs> thank, thank you for the follow-up.
0: <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate that. I mean, that, that, that's the yeah. magical thing about office hours is that yes, it is a program, but it's also a discussion. So when people do this, you know, they they face a problem. We give them the best advice we can. They go out and actually test it in the real world. Coming back here with the answer really helps everybody in the group. So Ike, thank you. It's great that you
1: did that and uh, encourage everybody else to think about doing the same. Let's go on to our next question. Next question is from Craig McFarlane in Boston, Massachusetts. And Craig asks, is there a workaround for when the Apple AirPods sending out a media pause signal if you uh, take one side out? Normally, I use in-ear monitors, but occasionally need to use the AirPods.
0: Yeah, I haven't found it yet, and it's just, you know, AirPods are very, very smart devices with a lot of sensors. One of the sensors is how many AirPods do you have in your ears? And if you take one out, the sensor realizes that that piece of the signal is gone and will reconfigure. I don't know always what it does. I know I occasionally just put one ear to listen in mono when I have to do something. I'm just checking a video in the morning and I don't want to disturb my wife, so I'll stick one AirPod in really quickly, watch something. If I put the other one in, 99% of the time, within a minute or two, that other pops on and I have back to stereo, but it it understands that I do that and it reconfigures itself to do those two different functions, stereo versus mono. And so there's just a lot going on. So I think that's just one of the things that AirPods are designed to do. Understand how many, which ears is it left or right, and feed that back into the system so that it can make the best decisions on sending you the kind of content that you need. They're a little more complex than I first thought, but they've been working really great for me too. So I'm sorry, uh, I don't use them as inner monitors ever, but uh, that's been my experience so far. Let's go on to the next question.
1: Uh next question is uh from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas and Paul asks the masters golf uh is coming up in Augusta. What should we watch for in TV coverage and will you watch it?
0: Who Alex, are you going to watch it?
1: No, I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> watching, go- <laughs> watching golf watching golf played is, is like watching the grass grow on the golf course in my opinion. I my family owns a golf course and so it's not like I don't pay attention to golf and I think golf is 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 a lot of fun to play. Um, you know, you're know, driving around a little cart and hitting little balls around. I think that's, that's, that's a good time. Um, but watching it, wow, that's super painful. Um, and so uh, the, if I, if I was going to watch it and I've covered some of these events, so here are the things that I pay attention to when I watch coverage. Number one is what kind of set do they have? They, they, they should have a landing set somewhere uh, for something this big, I, you know, you'll, you'll see a landing set and really look at what they're doing. A lot of times there it's an outdoor set, in getting that lighting working, and sometimes you'll see a little hint to the back behind the scenes. I don't know which uh, network is doing this one specifically, Fox has a tendency, um, Fox Sports has a tendency to do the best one. Um, And they have a really nice rig that they use in golf um, and it's really, really powerful lights that let them fill in. Look at how they do it in the evening. Does it, does the, in the evening shots, were they able to balance that out well? Um, Are they using any scrims behind them to kind of make it a little easier with the contrast? Those are the kind of things we pay attention to when they're, when we see them putting them together. Um, Also look at, you know, how good is the tracking on the ball? Because the tracking is really hard to do. <laughs> like it's always pretty amazing to watch. So we look at the the quality of the tracking on on, on those balls. We also look at the drone shots and the quality of the drone shots. So they'll do a drone shot where they before usually right before the show, like the week before, they'll take a drone. Um, they used to take helicopters, but they use now, <laughs> which made a lot more noise. But the uh, they take a drone and they and they they'll run it through there. And a lot of times we're looking for depth of field and the quality of the image. And, you know, all those other things are just things we're interested in as we, as we watch which drones I, mean, I think the most popular ones right now are Inspires um, to do most of those drone shots. And so, um, so they're, those, you know, just look at how they, how they, how they build that out. Do they do any 3D visualization? Augusta, there is a 3D model of Augusta um, that has been used in a lot of different things. So are they gonna use any 3D visualization um, for, for what that, ha- you know, what that actually looks like? And um, also for the static shots that are really high up, those are on really, really high poles. It takes a long time to get up and get down. And the uh, the the camera operators have to stay up there all day. I'll let you figure out how complicated that is. <laughs> Courtney Why has you never, thoughts. you get, never get near one of those bowls. <laughs> Bring a gallon jug with you. <laughs> it's not what they do. It's not what they do. Anyway. <laughs>
3: anyway, yeah, Alex mentioned a lot of the stuff. I was going to mention what I'd love to say. I haven't seen the masters in a couple of number of years, but and now that they're doing drone shots, I was wondering if they could implement uh, like some of the helicopter shots and all the car chase uh, stuff we see on the nightly news. They have these overlays, that are tied to the image coming from the camera. So if they could do a drone shot with an overlaid topographical map to show you the breaks of all the greens and the the relative heights of uh, you know, the T to the fairway to the green and so on, uh, uh, that would be handy to have. Uh, but I haven't seen that yet. Maybe that's coming. They can also just fly over, take the drone, fly over, and do a LIDAR scan of the course and get a complete topography of each hole and project it.
0: John Pretto.
4: So Doug Ferguson and Greg Ballot, who's one of our pro- long-time producers, who was the A1 on the rocket shoot, just did the women's uh, masters last weekend. And so we got inside view of, of everything that those guys were doing. It was amazing.
0: Uh, Alex, you wanted to come back on it?
1: Yeah, I'm interested to see, like because they're, when they're doing that tracking, they technically could figure out with a little bit more work, exactly where that ball is in 3D. And then they could re-project it back into a 3D model and let you get like the ball view of the hit. Like, so you hit it and you see the whole thing, just, you, you, you like flying, uh, you know, as the ball to wherever you're landing. I think that'd be great.
0: And for me, I grew up on the 17th fairway of one course and I live right now. That's my patio camera shot right now. So <laughs> I'm, go. on, I'm golf course adjacent. I love golf courses, if not for playing golf, which I did when I was younger and I enjoyed the heck out of it. Uh, for both personal and business reasons.
1: And the fact that you don't have to pay for any bowls. Yeah, I know. It's gets a lot of free golf balls <laughs> And a huge, back porch and every-
0: huge, bucket that fills up often. It's fun. Uh, but I, also, they just are a great attraction magnet for waterfowl and things like that. The Boy. The wildlife that's out there every day is just fabulous. So I, anyway. I,
1: I, I had a friend that that was right on the golf course. People kept on coming, you know, asking for their their balls back. And he just put a sign out that's just inside when you you go around. You don't really see it on the golf course, but if you go to talk to him, it just says, all it says is insured by Smith & Wesson. And he said, no one asks anymore. (laughs) He just gets to keep all the balls. (laughs) Uh,
0: it's fun. I, I imagine if you ever take those ice plants out there to the bottom of there, there's probably 250 golf balls hidden in those. You can't find them at all. Anyway, that's the fun of golf. So if you're if you understand golf and if you appreciate golf, golf can be a lot of fun to watch. But it's one of those things that you have to understand the it's back really end slow. of it because not that much happens unless you have a shotgun start yeah. tournament and then everybody's yeah. playing all at once and then everybody can figure out you know who's in the lead and who's coming up and who's got a tough shot on 17 and the rest of those things that can. Make Make it fun to watch and that's what the professionals try to do i am going to move on to the next question though
1: next question is from douglas carmichael and douglas asks could a marshall camera work as a monitor top camera
0: alex what do you think
1: yes but i wouldn't do it <laughs> yes, yes, why wouldn't you work. do it what, what, what are the downsides it's a really it's a c mount it's like this the, whatever the little um the goofy little c mounts that are there with the, the lenses, lenses and yeah. all the lenses are weird and it's not really that high quality and it's like maybe a little better than a web camera but i mean and, and if you have one laying around i might use it i wouldn't buy it for this if, if i had a marshall sitting around i would might try it but we've used these for little little places we put the cameras they're just not the image quality isn't isn't great, maybe slightly better than a webcam. Usually for the same price as a Marshall, you can get a really good webcam, like a Link360, Insta360 uh, Link. Let's go to our next question. Next question is from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul asks, in every copy of Mac OS that has shipped since 2018, Apple has included the original Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi Nakamoto, and no one seems to know why, why? That's an interesting thing. John Prato, do you know why?
4: It's, it's, I'm looking for it now. It's, it's buried in the subdirectory structure and it's a hidden file if it, if it's even there. Uh, but now that it's in the news, I'm sure Apple will remove it.
1: <laughs> yeah. My guess is, is that there's, that the, uh, some programmer put it in because he thought it was cool. And now it's, you know, it's a little bit of a Easter egg there that won't be there by the next version.
0: We did have one more question about NAB, but it's probably going uh, to push us over. Is that fine? So let's do it, and then we'll go. We'll be a little bit late into our second hour topic. So uh, let's go to the Roscoe Jones question.
1: Next question is from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Uh, what has been the best of evening event you've heard of or been to at NAB?
0: I imagine there'll be a lot of difference here. Let's start with Alex. Alex, what's yours? What do you
1: think in the evening? Uh, there have been a lot of good ones <laughs> that I've been to. Uh, but the best, I mean, one of the best evening events has been the, 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 the the Final Cut Super Meet has been a lot of fun. There's been a lot of big announcements. There's been, you know, usually it's a great place to hang out with a bunch of folks that are. I guess they call it the Super Meet now. They don't call it the Final Cut Super Meet, but the the Super Meet has been a lot of fun that anybody can get to. I, mean, I think you pay something for it, but I don't know what. Or maybe, do you pay anything for it? I don't remember. It's it made. was
0: like thirty bucks or something like some that. List, so it was so I, I don't pretty really think about
1: it, but it, but it's it's a fun place to see a lot of the folks that we all know. <laughs> you know, so so it's it's a good. It's a good place there. the The best ones have been typically, the, and they're not happening. Is the showstoppers and uh, Pop Pepcoms? You know, they have this coverage for press that you get to go to, and and all the big booths are kind of reduced down to a ten foot booth worth a couple of things, and you can talk to the actual product managers or the. And so, if you're press, those have been really, really great. Uh, Aja is known for having a great party and usually so I mean, everyone's jockeying for the infamous wristband uh that you can get to go to the Aja party it's hard to get into but usually a lot of fun and it's kind of a who's who of folks um that are there and then there's the big the, the big one is Colleen henry uh, every once in a while does a party <laughs> getting into that party is hard but it's really fun it's, it's like everybody you would ever imagine as a streaming person uh, you know doing big streams or whatever are all are all in one place for uh, about an hour, <laughs> so one or one or two hours. So that's those are those are the ones that I think are the most interesting. John Preto,
4: the best evening event is the Office Hours dinner event at NAB. That's the best one.
1: <laughs> you go. It's right. going to be. It's going to be the thing. The thing. The the, the, the big dinners. The, I think we're going to have these big dinners. I think at each one of these events now we're going to have to have the the pre-event dinner. So yeah, Courtney.
3: I don't know if they're still having it. They may not since COVID. uh, The ramps party, which is where I run into Alex, uh, (laughs) for all the sound mixers, recording arts, uh, production, sound, movies, production, sound. Uh, And it was then called Jeff Wexler's group, jwsound.org. Used to put on this big party every year uh, at a small restaurant uh, just off the strip. And you'd get sound mixers from all over the world, production sound mixers great door prizes, including you know zaxcom stuff and electrosonic stuff uh, so it was always great to go to uh, and they had good food
2: chris family. you know the, there's a whole number of different private meetups um uh Dave Mays is doing a uh, an in and out party on Monday night uh, as Preto mentioned uh, there's almost always something to go to, and the thing I would recommend is start your own I mean a couple of years ago I did a meet up for a couple of my podcasts, and we met on the third floor of the Cosmo at the pizza place there. There used to be a pool table. I was shocked how many people showed up. But, you know, uh, check Twitter. I, I find Twitter is a good place to find stuff. Maybe, maybe FaceSpace or, you know, MyBook or whatever they're called. Um, but there's always little meetups. And I'll say that my favorite NABs are the ones where I never even got a badge and never set foot in the, in the hall. There's so many things to do. There's so many pl- people to see, and um, I think I have a badge. I don't know that I'll use it. I'm only going to be there till
1: Tuesday morning, but um, I'll be there.
0: Uh, Alex, you had another thought.
1: I was going to fill in with Courtney as well as I. I went to that to the. I forgot about the the dinner with the sound mixers and or sound sound recordists and, and, and location sound, and it was funny. I went with uh, John Tatulas and and the the funny thing is is that I. John is a very unassuming guy. Like when you when you sit there and you talk to him, he's just always very very calm and very you know. And when he goes there, he is like he's a rock star. <laughs> like, like at on that at an entirely different level. And I just I you know was, and, and I just got to see John in his in his uh, uh, in his you know like everybody knows like i'm just sitting there just in the background just it was really fun to watch just just in the background just watching everybody want to come over and talk to john so he's it's a it's a different experience it's really yesterday's
3: fun. guest glenn sanders will always be there too so, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah no, absolutely usually yeah, when, i, I think it's 100 percent accurate what everybody is saying
0: you know it really does you get in there and you, the first couple of times you just go to the show but then you start meeting people and even if you just meet one person And then the next, they introduce you to somebody else, and you find three people. And the next thing you know, you've got a little group that you want to see when you go back to NAB. And it can be a very powerful connection thing. Uh, In fact, the first super meet, I helped start with Mike Horton, who ran it for all those years. And literally, we had about eight people, nine people in a little room off of NAB. And you flash forward 10 years, and we have 1,400 people in a ballroom and I also agree that the presentations are nice but really I I spent large portions of trade shows squirrelled away with four or five people just getting to know them better I you know and because of the fact that you kind of make these connections the next thing you know you're in a private suite and this happens all over NAB All the different vendors, all the different manufacturers, all the different uh, company things have little things going on in various places and you don't hear about them until you've been there enough and gone back and forth and people have gotten to know you a little and you've gotten to know them. And then suddenly you find yourself sitting in a room with somebody that you had no imagining that you would ever meet. But you get to chat with an A-list Hollywood director, or you get to chat with somebody who invented a technology like Courtney here. It's just amazing, and it's just this process of making connections, showing up, being polite, and you know, understanding that you need to make these relationships, and you don't want to oversell yourself, but you do have a chance to let people know what you're capable of, and it can really be transformative. Or at least it always has. That it was transformative for my career, and I think beacons transformative for a lot of people. Okay, uh, let's get to the meat of today. And I'm going to kind of pass things off to Alex because he knows this topic as well as anybody I know,
1: and it is HDR for broadcast. So Alex, take it away. Obviously, Bill doesn't know a lot of people. But, you know, if, if I'm the one that knows the most, I'm just giving you a hard time. <laughs> so anyway... <laughs> So anyway, so um, uh, I I I'll, I'll do the best I can to talk through this. I am going to be talking about this a little bit. So I, I'm not going to show a bunch of slides. What I'm going to do is talk through it and use my little little pen uh, to try to explain a couple concepts of what we're dealing with as we deal with HDR and 5.1. But Chris is going to try to use his brush. Um, I don't think it's going to work nearly as well. Um, so the the main thing is is that we what one of the things we're really interested in is is starting to you know, broadcast is working on this and they're streaming. Uh, the, the, you know different people that are working on streaming. YouTube now supports um, streaming in HDR. Um, you can do it, you can stream in actually vision and Atmos. We'll talk a little bit about that, uh, not with YouTube, but but you can do HDR 10 to YouTube as well as HLG kind of. Um, and, and the other thing we're, we'll touch on a little bit is also sound, so the 5.1 sound. I'm going to start talking about things. If you don't ask any questions, this is going to be a short hour. I do not have an hour. Of stuff to talk about but I am going to talk about some of the concepts that are related to it and hopefully that that s- stirs up some questions for people to think about and I can keep on answering those questions I don't know if I can again I don't know if I can talk about it so the first thing that I'm going to talk about a little bit is understanding the different formats of, of how this all works so when we think about this right now if you think about a Um, a chart, and what we're gonna talk about here is what's called the optical to optical transfer function, which is the signal value of what's going in, um, going out to a different curve. Um, So we're not talking necessarily about what we call the optical electrical transfer function or the electrical to optical transfer function, but really how these curves take a signal in and how they interpret them. So um, we also, one of the things that a lot of people think about is that there is, it's about brightness. You can turn a TV up to be very bright. <laughs> like, you know, there's a T, the TV itself, uh, you know, can be turned up to be very bright. It's not really about brightness. It's really about how much data is there in the darks and how much data is there in the, in the light areas that can then be represented. How much can you actually see in those areas? And there are, um, there's a couple different versions of, of what this looks like. So, Uh, one of the things that to note is if we, if we think about this and what we're going to do is we'll break this up into, you know, there's a lot of times we think in terms there's, this can go. Most HDR is, um, considered up to 10,000 nits, but you can go a lot more than that. I think I want to say that the sun is a million nits, if I remember correctly, or something like that, or more than a million nits. Um, so it's a lot, it's a lot brighter. Uh, the, the, the most bright screen that I've seen ever is a, that I've seen is a 4,000 nit, that I've heard of is a 30,000 nit. Uh, one of the things to note is that people think that's really bright and they will complain about it, except that if you're in the shadows in a alleyway and you look at a white wall, that's 9,000 nits. <laughs> like, like so, so, when someone says 4,000 is too bright, it's not. You, like, like that, we have to get over that because it's not really, that's what's happening. So, so well, let's think of it though, as we have for now 1,000 nits here, and here is 100 nits and the 100 nits, and so it is brighter, but it's also a lot, you gotta remember, it's a lot of rhythmic scale. Um, so, uh, so the, um, but you have 100 nits here, this is TV, this is what we call Rec 709. Um, and so so this is a, your standard standard def, um, dynamic range. And when you look at the curve that is actually happening with with what we see on our TV, it goes a lot like this. So that's the curve that you see, um, and, and it's just a it's, it's a near linear curve, but it's a it's not. And it, this is the standard how we get from you know zero to white or black to white um, in that area. Now there's another version of this called HLG. Uh, HLG uh, was really designed so that it looks pretty much the same as uh, standard dynamic range, but it has a little bit more room so that it can stretch out for HDR. And so HLG. The way it works is, it if you think about it, it it will follow the same curve, you know, up to about here, and then it it goes like this. Okay, so HLG will follow the SDR, and then it and then it simply goes over. And the reason it does that is that if you watch HLG, the way it's represented, if you watch HLG in um, a uh, on a standard definition, it's going to look a lot. Um, it's going to look uh, not standard definition but standard dynamic range it will look pretty normal um it will look a little darker but it will look fairly it will look fairly normal compared to that though i think it looks a little darker in the in that environment because because it's taking this long curve now there's another one and hlg was brought was put together by nhk in japan and the bbc in uh in in the in britain and it was done because that's easier <laughs> like so it is the easier curve because if you brought, if you run it through a truck, it works fine. It doesn't need any metadata. We'll talk about metadata in a second. It doesn't need a lot of those other things. And so, so those are the, um, you know, HLG is the easier one to manage because there's no other data. There's just the curve and it will look relatively normal if you screw it up. Um, Now, the next version of this is a PQ curve and the PQ curve is, and I'm just kind of roughing this out, but the PQ, PQ curve is very different. This is the uh, perceptual quantization, and basically it is a much steeper curve at the beginning, and then a much l- longer curve here. So this is what this is how the PQ curve kind of goes goes through here. Now, this one, if you don't correct for it, you know it <laughs> because it is it is going to be it is uh, it's going to look very. Anytime you see something that looks like it's log or looks like it's something off, the PQ curve is 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 much closer, in my opinion, to a log curve where you where it, it, everything looks. underexposed. Now, the advantage of this is that this gradualness here gives you more data to work with, you know, to pull up if you need to um, later. So, this is a, while this is, and, and usually the PQ curve is really thought of for cinema, and they talk about HLG being thought of for live. Now, there is, you know, HLG is easier to work with, when you shoot on your iPhone and it says it's Dolby Vision, what that is, what Apple's doing is actually HLG plus Dolby Vision metadata. So, and that and that's what we'll talk about here is that there's also another piece to this, which is metadata. So these curves are just curves by themselves; they don't do anything um, that's different. But what what we do then is we add some metadata to it, and the metadata is um, allows us to um, per either per um, Product, you know, so a whole movie or per scene or per frame, we can change that metadata. And what we do is we're able to stretch this curve based on what we call there's the um, the max uh, max uh, CLL and the max fill max fall. Sorry, so max fall tells you where this is where the the middle of the brightness is, and the max CLL is where the brightest points are. And by doing that, we're able to stretch the every we're able to stretch the brights and the darks. We're able to stretch that midpoint up and down, um, and we can adjust that. Now, that's metadata. That's those are numbers going through like a like a LUT. Those are numbers going through, and we also you know typically I mean to be technical, we have the red, green, and blue trims as well. So so this is the this is what we're using to. Um, uh, the advantage of that PQ curve is that we apply that curve and we and we can interpret it, and we have these extra little dials that we can turn to make that happen. Now, for HDR ten, all you have is this is the product, and this is the whole. This is these. Are, this is the metadata that you have here. For HDR ten plus and Dolby Vision, you have. Uh, you you can change this at every frame. You don't usually change it every frame, you change it every scene so that you can adjust it so that it actually does all the things it needs to do. And one of the advantages of that is that that, that metadata can also allow you to adjust to your end product. So having that metadata, while we may be building a show that that is a uh, 1,000 nits, we can stretch that further up and down. So we can go to 2,000 nits or 4,000 nits using that metadata because the metadata can come back and say, you know, I'm looking at this data, this metadata, and I'm saying I can stretch this because my TV can do more. And so the with Dolby Vision and with HDR10, and Dolby Vision, in my opinion, is a more advanced version of HDR10. HDR10 is, HDR10 plus is, um, uh, Samsung saying he doesn't want to pay Dolby Vision. <laughs> so so anyway so the uh, um, but but it, but Dolby Vision is you know constantly managed into those into those uh, and they use things called Dolby IQ to look at what's going on in your um, space. Anyway so so basically what you're able to do is use this metadata to fine tune and really take get the most out of it. Now when you see these long curves like this. The other thing you have to realize is that we are going to stretch this out. We're gonna stretch these up and pull them up. And the reason that that's important is because we're now going over a very long period of time here. And basically the problem is, is what was great in, in this uh, SDR. Um, with SDR, you know, it was basically in and out are relatively equal. When we start making these curves like this, the problem we get into is that we need more bit depth. Um, and so as we start to work on this, uh, if we take a, if we take something that's like this, the bit depth is less important, and you can get away with eight bit. But the problem you get into is as you start to, if we take this, and we start to do this, this curve like this that, that I showed here, this eventually has to be rectified. It has to be stretched out, and we the difference between here and here is very small in the in the output. It means that if we only have eight bits when we stretch this out, when we stretch this out to, to show it, the problem is we're taking a very small amount of change and we're stretching it. And what we get is posterization. <laughs> so, so eight bit when we, because remember that eight bits means that I have, I have eight bits to, for each color, which means that between black and white, let us see, let's see, between, if I, if I look at it like this, um, you know, from, from zero to a hundred, I've got eight bits, which means I've got two hundred and fifty-six stairs to get there. So if if this if if I look at this curve <clears throat> like this, and I go up here, and there's not much. This is really, yeah. um, instead of having ten steps here, I only have two. You know, and so the problem is is that now I'm just moving that because that curve isn't isn't covering as much distance. Um, so if I have, but if I do ten bit. I now have I've now quadrupled this, so this this two becomes an eight, you know, because it's now got over that small curve. I've got more bits to to stretch that along that that piece there, and so what that does is that gives us a lot less posterization, and that's why we like that. And and if we do it again, if we went to twelve bit, that eight of course becomes um, uh, thirty two. Thirty-two. I could do the math really quickly in my head. So I have actually more data than I had originally in the eight bit, even on that on the on that small amount of contrast change. Now, what that means is that we we can put we can pack a lot more data in there, which is why the big thing with HDR is not that you get. the, The big thing with HDR is not that you just have more data, it means you can put all these little changes and all these little highlights that, just, that we just lose. Many of us have shot a lot of video where you go, well, I just don't have enough range. I can't keep the, I can't keep the sky in, um, in exposure and have the shadows in exposure. But as you start to do HDR, you can theoretically map all of that, but then you have to have something that's going to unmap that on the other side. And so those are the things we have to kind of think about as we start to think about HDR is, um, is that we wanna map these out. Now, the problem we have in production is the metadata is great, but SDI, um, so so, I have all these, you know, I have a, I have a signal going along here and it's just got that curve on it, but I've got all this data. The max fill is 0.5 and this is a point, you know, a 0.8 or whatever. I've got all this metadata going along and maybe that's every frame, maybe it's for it. The problem I have is that the, systems that we have can't carry that metadata. <laughs> so they, they can't carry the metadata um, that's, that's there along with the signal. It gets lost in some router and some switcher that all that stuff gets managed. And you don't really want them trying to manage it because they'll screw it up. That's why people like to use L- HLG is because it doesn't require any metadata. It just says, I'm just gonna go through as a dumb, you know, a dumb thing going through the entire system. And, and that's why a lot of production uses HLG um, while I don't think that the curve is as good and, and, and as is, uh, you know, it gives you the same options, we can't send to HDR10 typically. We might be able to send HDR10, but we definitely can't do HDR10 plus or vision through traditional production. So what we do to do that is we typically either use HLG or we use HDR10. And what we do is we keep track of where the max fill and the max CLL are um, so that we can, identify that on the other end in our encoder. So it goes through the entire production system. It gets to, let's say our elemental encoder. The encoder says, I just tell it your max fill, your max fall, sorry, is this, and your max CLL is this, and maybe there's some trims. So I just tell it what the entire production was and then let it convert out on the way out. And, and that is a that's another way for us to, you know, kind of manage that, you know, that process so that we, we can do it. Is it perfect? No, <laughs> but this is where we are in, in produ- producing live, or we do HLG, which we just kind of put out. But again, I don't think that HLG gives you the same, uh, I don't believe it gives you the same, um, opportunities when it comes to detail and brightness and so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of different opinions about that, but I think that you get more, you have more data to work with, um, especially in a 10-bit space with the PQ curve than you do with the HLG curve, especially in the bright areas as opposed to the dark areas. So those are things that we think about. So what we do to do that is the easiest way to actually do this without having to worry about these curves is set everything to log. If you're not doing a lot of graphics and just run it through the system as log and then do a log to um, uh, PQ curve or, or HLG, but or you know basically at the very end, you convert it and um, do a LUT. And the main thing is is LUTs are really important because whether you're doing an HLG, a PQ, a uh, log output, you know, the bottom line is, is that you can, and and we do them all different ways. Log is the easiest one, it's not necessarily, there's a whole bunch of problems with log when it comes to compositing, graphics, those types of things um, become more difficult. But the the main thing is if you build a, a LUT, and a LUT is a, you know, we think of, when in Photoshop, we have a curve like this. What a LUT is, is a curve in three dimensions. So that's all, that's all it is. It just says, I have a lookup table, it's just math. And it says, insta, you, know, the, you know, in a curve, it's this, this point, point in and point out. That's all it's doing there. In a LUT, it's simply a, if you think about it here, it's like, a, you know, it's, it's a cube like this. And, you know, each axis is, is a different color and it's just doing that curve. And so when you see a LUT, that's all it's doing, you know, as it goes through there. So what you need to do is say, I've got this coming in. And here's the funny thing. You can do this actually with standard, def, uh, standard dynamic range imagery, imagery, which we do here. You take that standard dynamic range imagery and you apply a LUT to it. And that lookup table says, I'm gonna convert this out to this. Now, if you've got enough bits, if you're doing standard dynamic range at 12 bits and you protect for the highlights, you can get a reasonably good HDR back out the other end. You're just stretching and remapping those, that data, but you need a lot of data to do that. Um, And so, otherwise, um, what you want to do is, of course, shoot it in something that's going to protect for those highlights. And again, protecting for those highlights means you're going towards a log curve, towards a HLG curve, or towards a HDR10 curve. So, you're building those out, and at the end, you need to convert that to HDR. um, And then you're going to now put it into your pipeline. Um, And uh, how it, you know, of course you need to tag it so that, you know, that YouTube's tagging it for you. We're streaming right now. We're doing tests with, you're gonna see you do a lot of tests. Actually, we just got the live view in and we're going to be doing tests this weekend with, uh, HDR 10 going into a live view and then trying to stream to YouTube. Um, and, and so those are the, you know, th- that's kind of an, hopefully <laughs> that trumped up a couple questions about HDR before I go into sound, uh, we'll go ahead and, uh, and jump into some of the questions here and see what, see what we got.
0: Okay, why don't we swap and I'll read the questions. And you can. Uh, Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia is up for the first one. He says, what flavor of HDR are we planning on using? Is it HDR plus? If not, what are the technical reasons why it can't be implemented?
1: So it, there is no really, there's, there's no HDR plus. There's HDR 10 plus, which is the, um, so HDR 10 plus is, again, it, it is a meta, it's meta, it's meta it's the PQ curve. With metadata at every frame or every scene, I mean, effect- effectively every scene, but it's capable of every f- every frame. Uh, we're we are not going to use HDR ten plus because YouTube doesn't support HDR ten plus because managing data at every frame, managing that metadata at every frame would be complex. And so, so that's the um, you know that's the challenge with uh, with HDR ten and with Dolby Vision. Now, are we never going to do it? No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> so we are uh, definitely looking at using, um, right now we wanna implement it in HDR10 inside of, um, uh, and, and the main thing is, is that we just haven't been that successful with HLG as it relates to uh, YouTube. And so so we're gonna, um, so HDR10 is what we're going to be building out as. Um, and now that's gonna be, that's really just the PQ curve that we're going to, I mean, that we're putting in raw and then sending out. So those are the things that we're, that's what we're working on there. Um, but we you know, may come back to it. But right now, metadata at every frame is not something we could represent. Even in our production system, even if YouTube supported it, we couldn't use it because we can't, there's nowhere to put the data to make that to make that actually work. Uh, next question.
0: Alexander Knight in Vancouver, British Columbia is wondering what flavor of HDR are we planning on? Oh, wait, that's the last one. Uh, so it's, you know, he's back. Andy Kokendorfer with when will Zoom support HDR? That's
1: the question. Uh, we don't really need Zoom to, support HDR. What we need Zoom to per, um, support is 10-bit. Um, so, when will they support HDR? No idea. When could we possibly, hopefully, press for 10-bit? Maybe in 2024. I, you know, it's not really a, it's pretty much an edge case. We, as a group, have to prove the value of 10-bit, um, and I think we're the ones to do it. So, by, by and, and this is, when people ask me, like, why are you streaming in HDR? No one else is doing this. It's because we're pushing the outer envelope. We're pushing that forward. We're pushing a higher quality so the first thing we have to do is figure out how to do it reliably and regularly and do it every day. And then what's going to happen is, is that you'll see our Zoom images, and then we'll be cutting to HDR soon, you know, in our show. Um, and you'll see the, the 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 HDR looks amazing, and there's no posterization, and it looks really cool. And then we come back to Zoom, and it'll look a little posterized, and it'll look stretched, and everything else. And we're hoping that that will show why it would be really great if we had 10-bit, you know, <laughs> representation inside of that. And, and that's all we're asking for. And the 10-bit is marginally more expensive from a bandwidth perspective, uh, but, uh, but that's the kind of thing. And with 10-bit, we, can, we are now in control of being able to supply content that could be restretched because we have all that extra, all those little extra steps that are there. So we'll stretch that back out.
0: Uh, next question. Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana is up next. He says, has anybody used this for a
1: Blackmagic Design Final Cut Pro HDR project? And it's the B-Raw Toolbox. We really want to bring them on. Um, so we'll, I, I haven't haven't used it, but it looks like a great um, pipeline. Go ahead, Bill.
0: Yeah, it, a lot of people in the in the Final Cut community have been talking about that with very good results, I understand. Uh, Felipe Baez, who's here occasionally on the show, has done a lot of work in that. And uh, everybody's pretty excited about having... Um, some sort of tool set, as you famously know, there's a little bit of a schism between the Blackmagic Design B-RAW and the Final Cut Pro ecosystem. They don't talk to each other perfectly, so the HDR, uh, the B-RAW toolbox is a workaround for that from some quite smart people. And, uh, yeah, they'll probably be on the show and we'll talk to them. Next question. Next question comes from John Pretto in Las Vegas. Please compare and contrast HDR in photography versus video. Photographers simply take multiple images at different exposures and composite them. Go ahead, John.
4: So I'm trying to get all this through my head. And that that graph you just drew, you've drawn was the was it the optical transfer function graph? Op, well, it's optical to optical transfer function. Yep. And so I'm trying to if you compared a an HDR form on a regular scope versus a uh, standard definition, what would the, the waveforms look like?
1: Well, the, the, the waveforms look um, the same except for when you see SDR. Um, so when you're looking at a waveform here, um, it, well, you don't, hold on. You, when you see the waveform here, remember, you have to remember that the SDR is only going to be down here. Like it's all going to be represented in a hundred nits. So it's like one one volt, right? And yeah, and and or seven like tenths, and, Courtney. And so then here's a thousand. A thousand nits are are there. Um, and so so when you see the waveform for a a standard, um you know, some something that's an SDR, it's all living down here, right? And so then what happens is is that you. When you go into HDR, there's peaks that are going up, up above, you know, up, up into this area. Those are the highlights and some of the other bits and pieces. So, and what's so that, that peak that voltage at? Is that five volts or double uh, or I triple? Know, I, don't or? Really, I have to admit, I don't, I don't think of it in volts. So, I'd have to, I'd have to, I'd have to back up and <laughs> think about that. Voltage is not something I, I think about as related to images. Um, but not that it doesn't exist. I just don't think of it that way. Um, so, the main thing there is that. Uh, what's different about photographers in general is that you're not really looking at, uh, you're not really, when you do multiple um, images, you're not really building an HDR, a true high, dan- high dynamic range image. Mostly what you're outputting is what we call a tone mapped image. So basically what, what HDR does with photography and how we started with this is that we would have, if you take pictures and we think about it as exposures, you're taking pictures at different layers of exposure here. So, you know, this one might be zero, this is negative three in exposure plus three, and you might have lots of ones in between. Now, what it does by taking all the same images, what it does is says this brightness point and this brightness point and this brightness point, because they're right on top of each other, this is why the the tone it has to match, it can extrapolate a line. that's why the more you take, the more resolution you have, is it extrapolates what that pixel should be over all of those? So, if you even if you went up to plus nine, you know, or something, and you had one up here, as you have this, if I see this pixel at all of those exposures, I can build a curve. Um, and Paul Debevic was one of the first people to figure this out. I can build a curve between all of those that I can smoothly show you what it should look like from plus nine exposure to minus nine exposure if you represented those, but I can see all the steps in between because I'm extrapolating those points, those brightness points all the way up. Now what I do for when we do, now when we first did HDR, um, this is 20 years ago, we would keep that image that way because what we wanted was an image that we could represent for like reflection maps and so on and so forth and we had true we could see where the true highlights were where the really bright areas were and dark areas. So a lot of us used HDR for for lighting because this would give us the problem with SDR 8-bit lighting was that we didn't really know what was the brightest because everything was squished so close together. By having HDR we could very much see where all the bright, you know, where all the bright areas were because we now could see 20 stops, 30 stops, 40 stops of of data. And so, but we were, but but what we're basically doing is just building this curve that goes between all these, all these brightnesses where we know what the exposure is and we know where, and, and now we build that out. Now, what most people think of as HDR in photography is we take those images and then we, and we build that curve, but then we tone map it down. So we take something that was like this, that we can't represent and see and we just map it down using math to map it down so that it's something we can see in our in, in our monitor or represent. So we're basically taking all of that dynamic range and compressing it in the same way we would compress audio. You know, where we basically compress all of it down and pull all that stuff down together um, with a curve, and that brings up all the all the dark areas so that they are something we can see in detail brings the light areas, it can get a little weird <laughs> because we're doing all that compression. Um, so an
4: HDR image in video is not going to look like a Trey Radcliffe
1: picture, right? Uh, you can you could build a curve so that it would. I mean, when we do a, you know, you can build that out, but it's it's hard to represent it in eight bits. You know, in, in video, if we're going back to standard dynamic range. Uh, it is hard to repre- represent that 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 curve allows us to see all of the, all of that data because it holds all the data. Uh, in in a in a linear SDR curve, you can't you can't you can't. Just, there's just no there's no buckets for it. Bill, were you going to add something?
0: Yeah, well, you know, this didn't get on my radar until 2014, and I went to NAB, and uh, I was part of the press corps, so I got the packet from Blackmagic, and I remember going back to my hotel room and picking it up, and that was the year they kind of changed a lot of their marketing materials to reflect the fact that they were moving into these kind of spaces, and in fact, uh, when I knew this was going to happen today, I went back and grabbed my press kit and grabbed a couple of images from there, and I remember this is the first time sitting in a hotel room that I really started to understand what high dynamic range brought to you because i was sitting there looking in my computer at this image and i was thinking my god i've never seen anything like that coming out of a monitor that i've looked at the white shirt on the guy who's bending over in the center of the frame has plenty of detail and shadow values outside the window and the it's actually brighter on my screen here than looking at it on the the office hours thing, but there's a lot of detail in the back. The sky has a lot of gradients. The gray shirt on the right actually has a lot of detail in the shadows there. And all these tones were the, it's the first time I'd seen anything like that. And as I looked through the rest of the press kit, they had really made these kind of really high visual value pictures kind of come to life in a way that I'd never seen before. And I really went, Wow, how did they do this? And that started me saying, maybe what I've been looking at all my life up to this point in standard definition television, maybe there's a better way to get this much contrast, this much dynamic range, and this much pop. And that's how kind of I felt about it, standing there at LAB going, oh my gosh, someday this may get to video. And if it does, this is going to be transformational. Because these do look much more appealing and much more lifelike than the compressed dynamic range of stuff that I've been working with my whole career. Next question. Next question comes to us from Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. How expensive
1: is it to go from an HD to an HDR production pipeline? It doesn't have to be hugely expensive. It's, you know a lot of your cameras are cap- a lot of the newer cameras are capable of you know pro- producing an HD a PQ curve. Um, a lot of stuff. The real problem that we're running into is really the fine, you know, really taking full advantage of it, as well as the one of the issues right now with the ATEM switcher is that it tends to automatically want to try to figure out what it's getting, what color space. Am I in 709 or, two, or 2020? And it is a, um, uh, that has been a challenge for us to figure out how to um, keep it in one place or the other. So we're, we're working on that right now and, and we're getting much closer. Uh, Next question.
0: Courtney Gooden in Hollywood says, when will HDR be available on over-the-air TV broadcasts, and what do I need to see it? Uh, Yeah, go ahead, Courtney.
3: Well, I was just going to, uh, in my wondering, I have tuners, and I bought a uh, next-gen tuner-enabled television set, which is uh, ATSC3 for broadcast, which supposedly will receive over-the-air broadcasts of uh, HDR uh, 4K, or 1080p, but I looked through and I scanned through with uh, my tuners. There's only three stations out of the 150 that you can pick up over the air in Los Angeles that are using next-gen TV and none of them are broadcasting in HDR. Uh, so, and, and none of them are the majors, you know, they're the independents, so the independents are going first. And I guess the majors, you know, KABC, which is the Disney flagship, uh, ABC channel in Los Angeles is still in 720p for broadcasting. So uh, I don't see HDR coming very soon in broadcast. I think the way to receive it now is via streaming with, uh, you know, streaming boxes such as the, you know, Fire TV 4K and the Apple
1: TV and the 4K. Yeah. it's it's So when we kind of talk about broadcasting, mean, I think broadcast is just sending something live to from, from glass to glass. I don't, you know, I don't, I haven't watched terrestrial broadcast in any major form for 25 years. So I don't really have any, like it's, you know, it's approaching half my life that I haven't really had that experience. And so, you know, I don't really care much about tuners, um, you know, I, and, and I don't think that, I think that the future is really, the, the, the challenge really for broadcasters in general is that they're gonna continue to fall far further and further behind because they don't have the money to make the turn. So their their market is shrinking, and they are, um, their market is shrinking at the same time that their competitors are expanding. And that's a horrible place for them to be. Um, and so, because what you're gonna see is increasing frame rates, increasing resolutions, increasing color depth, all are happening in the streaming platforms and are never gonna happen in the broadcast formats. The broadcast formats are gonna be 720 or 1080i forever. Like, you know, they don't, they're never going to, they're, they're going to be dead before they change any, any, in any major way, because they, they don't have the money to buy the hardware to do the thing.
3: Well, you know, the, other so, thing, go the other thing I was going to say, the other thing that uh, next gen TV or ATSC three adds is interactivity, but it does require an internet connection. So maybe when they implement that, they can add HDR or they add interactivity to reception as well to try and capitalize. They're doing that to try and capitalize uh, to compete against streaming you
1: know they're they're trying they're not going to be successful like it like it's you know like I've, I've watched this conversation go, for 20 years <laughs> it's just like it's like it's not gonna work like they're, they're not going to be able to because the interactivity that they build around their shows and everything else is going to be is never going to be that compelling not, and and they just can't they can't flex as fast or as 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 well as the streaming platform that just has bits and they can change those bits anytime they want they can add interactivity to them they can do all those things so while these the the broadcasters you know definitely are trying to stay doing the best they can to stay as relevant as they can for as long as they can there's no there's no version of this that works out for them like i and know and i i i you know i don't know how to <laughs> be more, like I've, I've been in i've been in the rooms for all these conversations and when they talk about what they think of as interactivity you're like that was interactivity in the late 90s like like that's not what we're talking about now like being able to vote on something okay okay, you know, like, like that's, that's, uh, you know, um, that's okay, but that's not enough to, to get people to, to, you know, consider that part of their lifestyle. Like, and, and again, this comes down to, uh, you know, the, the, there's not that many people I know with tuners anymore. Like, the, like well, that's so, the, that's the whole thing.
3: Well, so what do you think is going to happen to all that FCC licensed bandwidth? Is it eventually going to be given up for broadcast television and gone over to just internet connectivity? Well, Across a wide band, so that everything will be received, you know, universal uh, internet connectivity for free, you know, like free Wi-Fi for everyone, instead I, of broadcast TV.
1: I I think that, you know, we've talked about this in other in other cases. I, we're getting a little into the weeds here, but but the but I what I will say is that is that fiber glass, not broadband, but glass to the every house should be utility like plumbing. Like phones like electricity, it should be glass to the house and it should be an affordable it doesn't have to be free, but it should be an affordable number <laughs> that, that looks exactly like what we did there. and people in the city will pay more than they should and people in the rural areas will still be able to afford it. and it would change it would make more of a change to the United States than any other anything else we could do because it would allow people to re- reorganize where they live without having to be you know tied into a specific locations. But it would also mean that they get the they get they have access to all of these things. Um, broadcast tuners did have an advantage until a couple of years ago, which is when tuners when we were still doing the analog broadcasts, the quality was way higher than 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 cable. What ruined it? What just what what what's funny is is to pack more channels into the broadcast. They went they the FCC moved to digital broadcasts. When they moved to digital broadcasts, they destroyed the only thing that made them different, which was that their, the video, the visual quality of a broadcast to a tuner was, in my opinion, somewhere between five and 10 times better than cable. And as soon as they went to digital broadcast, it was no better than cable. And there was no reason to have a tuner anymore. And that is the, the, the they literally to get, to try to pack more in, they ruined the only thing that they had that made them different. <laughs> It was an, an insanely stupid thing to do. And we told them that when they did it, you know, like for, for five years, I was in meetings talking about this, like, yeah. You know, you're going to you're going to ruin the only reason people have tuners is so that they get a higher quality and they're like that doesn't matter no one notices. I was like they will when they get it. <laughs> yeah, actually ATSC
3: 1, which we have now, is our standard form of broadcast is much worse because oh. it doesn't just degrade <laughs> gracefully. It starts to stutter and freeze and then you can't watch the program. Before yeah. with analog, it would okay, so you'd get a little snow, but you could still see the program. It was it was Now it
4: was, you
1: can't even watch it. I was in those meetings and we were just like you're taking out the only reason to have a tuner. And, and 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 once you take that out, you're you're just gonna fall off a cliff. <laughs> you know, so so I don't have any. I don't feel bad because I feel like they they bought they did it to themselves. Go ahead, Chris.
2: Yeah, there, there's a lot of really sad elements to this discussion. Uh, this one of which really is dark.
1: we were talking about HDR. Well, no, it's it's, it's worth dark. talking about. I think it's it worth, talking, worth about. talking about. It is worth
2: talking um, about. One thing, Alex is. Uh, the fact that you haven't had broadcast television for 25 years is sad because you're missing out on a, on a lot of great Wow commercials. Uh, <laughs> I haven't... am telling you, do that guy's got talent. That guy's I've going to places. I've heard
1: about commercials. Once he gets out of jail, he's did. going some
2: places. Yeah. Um, the other issue is, uh, you're right. Uh, would you say, I think you said, I'm going to use your words against you, 10 to 100 times better. When no, it was 5 analog. to 10. 5 okay, to 10. Okay, whatever. Uh, better. <laughs> Uh, yeah. The problem is, and this goes back to my, my VHS rant, people don't care. People can't see the difference. It, it might be 10 times better, but like one person in a thousand can see it or care until, of course, you you know red pill them and, and show them macro blocking. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing about just the death of television that I find super sad um, is we have lost the magic of the... Um, what did NBC call it, Courtney? Uh, uh, must see TV Thursday nights, whatever. We've lost television. the magic. Appointment television. Appoint, yeah, it's now it's just become disappointment television. But uh, um, the magic of that kind of water cooler thing Friday morning after everybody watched Lost the night before or whatever, and I think that 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 is a a thing that is it was fun. It was special, and it is totally lost when you sit down with somebody and you go oh yeah like uh, uh, my good friend bob he said to me the other day he goes uh i binge watched 10 episodes of uh ted lasso last night i said welcome to 2020 how's you know how's the how's how's the weather back there
1: like I will say that that's the argument for live streaming in some cases, because what do we all talk about on Tuesday after WWC's keynote? WWDC's keynote. <laughs> because it, we all watched you, it at the same time. You're
2: not wrong. But, but I think that the, the thing about live or um, scheduled release, I don't know what you call it, when you know, what television used to be, it, the, it was really special. And it's t- that thing about TV is totally lost now. Totally, completely
1: lost. I, I think we're bringing it back though. When we, when we, when we do our watch parties with, with, uh, I think we're, we're. This is the seed, not the, not the tree, but the seed of us thinking about another way of doing this. Like we're all going to watch. It doesn't matter when it was released. We're all going to watch it together. And I think that there's. Um, I think you're going to see some. I'm going to probably do something more aggressive in that area inside of After Hours in the not too distant future. So stay tuned. I could. You heard it here, yes. Alex Lindsay, bringing sexy back.
2: Yeah. Good, Bill.
0: Uh, The other thing for me that has been so transformative in the past three years is the divergence of consumption options for any video signal, whether it's television or what I used to have recorded on something or anything else. Once upon a time, if I wanted to see TV style content, that big show or whatever, I always watched it on the TV in a living room or in the bedroom. Or maybe I was lucky enough to have the economic power to put one on the patio or wherever. But it was always a TV. Boy, has that changed for me. I am so much equally possible to be watching television or a movie or any other content on my phone or my iPad. And it doesn't have to be this one. If I'm at my desk, it's the one that I'm using for the show, my iPad over here. But it could be either one of my two phones it could be i'm next to my wife watching on her ipad there's just so much more display options available that the idea of a bespoke appliance television is just getting totally deconstructed in my brain it's just the I signal so. and how do i get to the signal that's all i care okay. about
1: well there we go there's a very philosophical uh, thing. we're not going to make it to five one today but we'll, we'll cover it again let's go to the next question
0: Next question, Doug Johnson in Spanish Fork, Utah. I've shot and live switched HLG many times. How can I take the output of my ATEM and tag it so that it gets uh,
1: treated as HDR? Uh, yeah, so the you need to put it through something that's going to tag it. A lot of times that can be what we use are FSHDRs for that. So it'll say this is this and you're tagging it on the way through. Um, but I, I don't think that that's probably the only way. I think that you can, a Teranex may, may actually do that. I don't know of a lot of smaller devices that do it, um, but you do need something that's going to tag it. And what we've used for the last, I don't know, eight years has been a FSHDR. You know, we'll tag what we need it to do. You're coming in, even if you give it one in, one out, you're telling it, this is what it's going to be. And we've been successful at having that display out. Um, next question.
0: Matt Parker, Sarasota, Florida. Which curves display more color banding?
1: Uh, it depends on how many bits you have. So, so I, you know, my opinion is, is that when you really want to stretch it to, you know, past a thousand nits, you're going to see more color banding at 10 bit with the HLG than you will see with the PQ. Um, And that's because of the way that curve just in in the high, in the highlight areas, that curve is very flat. And so um, there's just not a lot of movement uh, across the curve. And so I think that you'll see more banding in HLG at um, higher, higher knit ranges um, than, than a thousand. Um, next question.
0: Jonas Dottel, Stuttgart, Germany. So is Office Hours 2.5 going to do an HLG workflow similar to what the BBC and or NBC is doing for their SDR, HDR, or will there be a double paint wind workflow? Uh,
1: right now we're trying to make the PQ curve work because eventually we want to do Dolby Vision. So, so it's and I think that it I think we're going to get it's easier to convert that um, for a variety of reasons. And so um, so I'm. Still, you know, what we're working on right now and what we built. Now, we may back into HLG because we can't make that work. But what I'm trying to make work is the PQ curve and then making those changes at the encoder. Um, next question.
0: James Babbitt, San Diego, are all ways to view HDR, for example, Netflix, Apple TV+, Plus, YouTube browsers and so forth, able to give the same quality of HDR?
3: Go ahead, Courtney. I don't think so. Uh, like I have YouTube TV and uh, receiving it on a uh, fire TV 4k HDR and on a Google TV HDR 4k and I'm rarely seeing the same image on both um, I don't have an apple TV and it's hard to find out uh, whether the signal is in HDR you can on YouTube TV you can turn on stats for nerds and see the the manifest in there to see what they're transmitting a little bit but on other other programs, you really don't know what they're transmitting and what it's decoding as. So it's it's difficult because they don't have a uniform way of indicating the resolution and the uh, bit depth or the whether something is an HD, HDR or SDR. So it's it's a bit of a crapshoot. Uh, and you do have to pay extra on YouTube TV for 4K and HDR. And very few of the channels that they carry are even broadcasting in 4K. So uh It even though you're paying ten bucks a month or now five bucks a month for that four K feature, you may not be able to get it. Next question.
0: Next one comes from Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida, for TV for video editing on a Mac. Is it ever useful to turn on the HDR display mode in system settings? Go ahead, Bill. If you have uh, the footage and the workflow that can keeps it consistent, yes. Uh, If you're shooting on, for example, your iPhone and you're bringing it into Apple's Final Cut Pro and you have the HDR display mode set up, then you can do all your editing in a very lovely high uh, definition environment up to an including outputting where it'll automatically uh, clamp things so that you can get a decent signal out to send out to SDR. So, but when you stop using that kind of pipeline where everything sees everything else, understands it and parses it correctly, you can get in trouble. There's a lot of circumstances where I've been set up one way. I bring in the HDR footage off of my iPhone that I've shot and all of a sudden everything blows out and gets terrible and you go, oh gosh, okay, I've got to go reset and make sure that it's seeing this, understanding the flags and parsing it correctly to do that color, uh, that that gamma correction and get it down into a viewable thing. Next question uh, Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida. Are there video codecs that are better for HDR contact,
1: content or codecs that should be avo- avoided? When it comes to actual recording codecs, uh, I have almost never, like when we're doing production, so there's a couple things. H.264 does not do this. <laughs> so you have to do H.264, you can't do 10 bit. In H.264, so you do need H.265 um, for 10-bit, and so for a delivery format, H.265 is what you need to make sure that you maintain a 10-bit color space. Um, for a mezzanine or or, an, or a production um, format, I have the only thing that we've seen is MXF and and ProRes, you know, and and so um, those are the those are the ones that we we see, you know, packaging MXF can be a lot of different things in the package. But the most popular is prores hq and above so prores hq prores um, xq444 you know there's a lot of different versions of that the question is do you want to go to 10-bit or do you want to go to 12-bit and is the data rate there to to support that but the thing we get the most um when we when we're working in hdr is actually um, is the 10-bit uh the prores hq is the most popular one to be sent around um, so those are those are things to kind of consider there and we almost have enough time but not quite to start talking about the sound and this is a video day so we're gonna go ahead and just we're gonna end before <laughs> we'll save the five. one uh, and and surround an atmos uh, discussion for another day probably an audio day uh, to have more of those discussions there so uh, thanks to everybody for all the questions hopefully that was at least a little useful as far as understanding a little bit more about how HDR works uh, I will probably do more, more talking about this, um, maybe in after hours next week, as I prep all these, uh, all these talks, um, we may do some, you may see me in after hours. I may do some labs where I just do the talks and get people's feedback and so on and so forth. So stay tuned for more of that, um, as we go towards NAB. All right. Uh, thanks to the uh, to the panelists for you can't we can't do this without you it was a good day it was a good day a good a lot a of, lot of good questions um, a lot from our from our uh, from our producers thank you for all the great questions uh, both in the first hour and the second hour and to keep this all going and uh, of course thanks to the incredible team uh, that makes everything happen every single day it really is a small little village that gets built up uh, every uh, every day to, to make this actually possible and we really appreciate everybody's contribution. Uh, we traveled eighty-four, eighty-two thousand miles, one hundred thirty-two thousand kilometers. That's six hundred and fifty-one bananas for scale.
0: Alex, I have a question about the bananas for scale. Yeah, since we have a little bit of time, is that a standard banana that is stretched out end to end, or does it count no, the this, curve? And is every banana's curve equivalent? And it's,
1: this, this is the imperial banana. So okay. So we have measured this banana. So um, it's tip to tip, non-straightened, non-straight, tip to tip, eight inches. Um, And so, but this is, I keep it here on the desk because this, and we're gonna, I'm gonna build a 3D model of it. We're gonna codify it, build, you know, really make sure that it stays, that we don't lose it to history um so there's you know so um this is the but it's and it's plastic so it's not it's a representation of a banana and that allows us to standardize on it if we used a real banana of course it would rot and change size and that that curve would go away and you'd get an extra quarter inch at least and and (laughs) what's interesting there is is that for um you know for a while uh we um for a while there was a seven inch banana that's what the so the actual before we had the imperial banana pre-imperial banana. Um, uh, that's otherwise known as PIB. So in the PIB days, um, the, uh, uh, the, the banana was seven inches because they just made a calculation. But We needed something that was really something that we could transform to an actual reality. And so as we got this, Fenwick was kind enough to supply me with five of these imperial bananas. Uh, this is one of them. I actually haven't tested whether they're all the same. I don't know if, they're, if they give me a variety of are they I know it won't change the. Uh, uh,
2: national... uh, oh, this could be bad. I know it won't
0: change the dimension, but if you're south of the equator, should you have the curve pointed the other direction just to make sure that? <laughs> right.
1: No, no, so no. These are these are these do appear to be all the same. So uh, it's interesting, yeah. So yeah, are they so registered with the National Bureau of Fruit Standards? A, a banana measurements. National. Yeah, national banana for scale um what we should probably do is send these bananas out to a, a variety of people so that there are there are records of them so if it's one secure. banana was lost um, yeah you know, a big fire a you could lose your them. entire we could, we could lose we could lose that lose that banana the imperial banana and so um you know, so we've got some bananas there. i would like to but motion
0: to bill's is, question uh, the banana does spin backwards south of the equator <laughs> good to know. Should you decide to wash
2: it in a motion <laughs>
0: if you area try of water, flush it down toilet. <laughs> <down>. <laughs> <laughs> That's
2: right. People are
1: like, "What are we listening to here?" Like, I this think is distribution
2: gone. of the of the original five bananas is a good idea, and and yeah. I think one of them should be buried in a
1: concrete box <laughs> before we distribute them. You Just need to name someone them. Someone finding it in a thousand years, <laughs> they open it up and they're like, "And somebody put a banana, a plastic banana." in concrete i'm not saying there shouldn't be some instructions and you know but all it should say on it i'm not a barbarian no 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 no, no. all it should say there should be a little note I, i think we even just write it on it and it just should say banana for scale like, uh, to like, just not, you know. There's no other. Like, it just, and 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 there'll be like, there'll be whole classes about it that are all done about the the banana for scale. <laughs> like, what did this mean? You know, we we there are rumors that it was connected to a website that no longer exists called Reddit, and we don't really know. But you know, there there's the meaning of it. There could be a philosophy course. I'm thinking office hours, hours the time capsule. Yeah, yeah.
2: At the fair. very least, can somebody please put it in uh, Urban Dictionary for yes. what? banana for scale means
1: i think it is in the urban dictionary banana for scale i i'm not 100 certain guess very what, likely guess
2: what the next website i'm gonna look at is. Yeah,
1: exactly exactly by the way i did get the road nt1 generation 5 um since we had a minute to, to to share that but uh we're testing this right now so it's probably there you go there you go isn't
4: it true that that banana follows a bezier curve perfectly <laughs>
1: yeah it's pretty PQ everything curve? <laughs> bezier curve is very malleable so you can have lots of things follow the bezier curve <laughs> all right all right now we're going to jump into after hours
3: it, See banana for scale see it's already there
2: it's, a it's kind of fun to see how this Conversation can devolve so quickly in end of conversation.
0: It's important when you have to hit timing
2: at the top of the hour for a network. You're going to learn to stretch. We don't hear you, Alex. You're over, you're over whispering.
1: I'm not over whispering. You're over talking. You're making so much noise. All right, fine.
2: I'm trying to get this thing hooked up with USB or something.
3: God. <sighs>